Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur, for these kind words. I'm afraid what you've said about my career makes it quite plain that I'm not really qualified to speak about this subject at all. <laughs> and I think anyone who will persist in staying to the third of these three lectures will become personally convinced of this truth, as I'm probably shall I. Let me begin by explaining that what I propose to talk about are indeed the origins of the idea of the, of the history of culture. When it, the very notion of culture as a possible subject of history arose, and in order to do that, something must be said about the notion of culture itself. Well, the word culture has never been used as frequently as it is in our own time. It's uh, uh, no country, no association, no body of persons, no nation, no group, but has its own culture, which in some sense they feel they must disseminate among others. Not only are the national cultures, not only are the racial cultures, there is black culture and white culture, there is the culture of old, youth culture, and presumably the culture of middle age and, of middle age and old age, in contrast, there are the cultures of West and there is the culture of the East, there is drug culture, there is anti-drug culture. All these things have become almost a kind of trademark. I mean, the number of associations for the purpose of promoting culture, paying for culture, defending culture, is very great. Uh, attacking culture, perhaps, too, for all I know. Um, the thing that I wish to say is that this is a new phenomenon, so to speak, which attracts attention to why it should be that this word is used in this connection. Now, in that, that sense of the word, culture simply means some kind of mode of living some kind of general pattern of existence or life which a particular body of persons suppose themselves to possess, to which they attach a certain value, and which they feel that they express in their lives, in their actions, in their thoughts, in their feelings. Any form of, so to speak, any texture of any kind of um, common or associated life would in that sense possess culture in that sense. It, it's a sense which really comes from social anthropologists. This is not the sense of culture in, in, in which, for example, people like Matthew Arnold were concerned about culture. The sense of culture which I've just spoken is one which is presumably to be distinguished from disorganized life, individual existence, absence of some kind of social pattern which unites all social activities in some kind of centralized way which gives them some kind of single quality, some kind of particular pattern quality which distinguishes them from the rest. The sense in which people like Coleridge, like Arnold, in a certain sense, I suppose, too, um, uh, even in our own time, I don't know, um, people, like, like, people like Eliot, people like Curtius, even Dr. Leavis, are concerned with culture, is a sense in which it is to be distinguished from barbarism, from philistinism, from some kind of shallow view of life. Culture, so to speak, as in the sense of haute culture. Culture, principally concerned with what might be called the expressions of the spirit in the realm of art, in the realm of thought, perhaps in the realm of sciences as well. These are not the same sense of the word. And yet, to some extent, of course, you can't draw a sharp, a sharp distinction between them. What they have in common is that they're both distinguishable from raw, untutored nature. It, the word comes from cultura, it's a perfectly good Latin word, meaning cultivation of. Cultura animi is a phrase used by um, Cicero. There is a sense in which Sophocles talks about it under another name. Paideia in Greek refers to roughly the same kind of thing. It's uh, the sense, uh, what it means is cultivation of some kind of raw material. Uh, when Bacon talked about culture as the Georgics of the mind, or Holbach talked about education as agriculture of the mind, these were perhaps not very um, <laughs> delicate or, or very evocative expressions. Nevertheless, one knows what they mean. They mean there is some, something 
uh, there is a raw material presented, which then is to be improved in some way, to be tended, to be made something of. That's what the original use of the word culture, cultus, paideia, humanitas, um, urbanitas, all these various words which are used for it at, at various ages. Now, what I wish to say about, about it is this, that there are really two approaches to the subject. One is what I rather crudely call the French approach, simply because I wish to associate Voltaire with it. The official father of the history of culture is Voltaire. In every book on the subject you will find that he is the man who virtually invented the history of culture as he is the man who virtually invented the philosophy of history. I should somewhat like to, to question this somewhat. In order to explain to you what it is that Voltaire did, or what, what it is Voltaire is held to have done at any rate, um, let me say something, I'm afraid it will probably be very familiar to everyone here, nevertheless I think I must uh, say something about the general ideas prevalent during the Enlightenment of which Voltaire was so great an ornament and propagandist. If you start from the proposition that to all serious questions there is only one true answer, all the other answers being false, because this is, it must be so. If the question is a serious question, then presumably there can only be one true answer to it. A question in, uh, of a descriptive nature, presumably, is exactly such. And the, at the heart of European philosophy, almost from Plato onwards, of course, there does dwell this notion that all askable questions must have a solution somewhere. Where the solution is will, of course, differ according to the thinker and according to the school of thought. Whether you think the answer is uh, to be found in sacred books or in the words of uh, a particular school of interpreters or in um, the inner vision of the metaphysician or in some kind of empirical investigation in the laboratory or otherwise or in the pronouncements of common sense or whatever it may be, that about that there will be differences. What there will not be a difference about is the assumption that any serious question must be capable of a correct answer. If there is no correct answer possible in principle, but this is a dogma which is not at all confined to positivism, then there is something wrong with the question itself. This is certainly a proposition which the Enlightenment in general accepted. Now, if this is so, this, go this is in line with the general view that nature, if it is pro properly tortured, properly probed, properly looked at, will supply the answer if the proper technique is adopted. The technique which, of course, the Enlightenment, as we all know, regarded as the most successful technique for the obtaining of answers to all questions, whether factual or normative, is the technique of the natural sciences. The natural sciences have, after all, cleansed the Augean stables of what had been a mixture of metaphysics and theology, which had become a kind of scandalous chaos towards the end of the 16th century, and there was no reason for supposing that if the same technique was applied to moral or aesthetic or political or religious questions as well, equally lucid, interconnected answers could be found. Nature was, in a sense, a harmonious whole, and if it was understood as such, once the mind penetrated its interconnections, it would see where everything fitted. This is certainly the kind of view which, for example, you will find in Spinoza, who supposes that nature in general makes for uniformity. Everything in nature is systematic. Everything in nature ultimately belongs to a single unified systematic whole. The only difficulty is to discover what this particular whole is, and to do this, you apply rational methods which will presumably supply you with the correct answer to your question. Now, in applying these, these questions to the past, which Voltaire did, he arrived at the proposition that on the whole, the sum of human error was to be explained either by stupidity or by wickedness.
That is to say, as you know, the Voltaire's theory of the past was that there were a great many power-seeking knaves who managed to throw dust in the eyes of a great many fools, and ultimately threw dust in their own eyes too. So that the world is, broadly speaking, governed by the, either by arrant nonsense, simply produced through human intellectual weakness and stupidity, or through inventions of lying priests, or lying kings, or other persons who seek to obtain command over innocent human beings. And that is why the human history is so full of misery and vice and darkness. There are certain periods in human history where this is not so. One is the classical Athens. The other is imperial and partly also Republican Rome. The third is Florence during the Renaissance. And the fourth and greatest is the century of Louis XIV. These are the only points, bright points of light, so far as Europe at any rate is concerned, in what is in general to be regarded as a great circumambient sea of darkness. And the important thing is to explain what it is about these particular periods which makes them particularly valuable. When Voltaire set forth, when he began writing his essay sur les mœurs, on which the fame, his fame as a historian of culture rests, and indeed when he wrote the famous, his famous work on Le siècle de Louis XIV, I mean, about the age in, into which he himself was born, after all, in which he was not, not altogether young, even when the great king died. When he set forth to do these things, the general program was to try and illuminate what was so splendid about these ages and to contrast it with a fearful nonsense, the, the absurdities and the uh, crimes, so to speak, which, um, from which these ages were among the few fortunate escapes on the part of mankind. To say that he had a sense of history would really would be an exaggeration. Voltaire is quite clear. He says the only things which a historian need do is to write down those things which are likely to be useful for mankind. Now, what is useful for mankind? Either that which makes people sane, which makes people saner, more rational, less liable to fanaticism, to intolerance, to nonsense. That is a good thing. Or that which gives people pleasure, for example, by amusing them or by entertaining them. All the rest is of not the slightest importance. And he says, why should we spend pages and pages on, um, so to speak, telling the stories of how one barbarian despot followed another barbarian despot. <laughs> um, why should we want to know whether Quincum succeeded Quickum or Quickum succeeded Quincum? <laughs> why should we spend a great deal of research and a great deal of material of the monks, who are of course among his unfavorite, most or least favorite human beings do, why should we spend both all, all this zeal and all this energy upon, for example, discovering the precise difference between the reign of Louis the Fat and Louis the Obstinate. <laughs> that is, roughly speaking, his view of medieval history. It's not very unlike the view of, of the late Lord Russell, whose history of Western philosophy is also founded upon somewhat similar principles. It's, from the point of view of the reader, it's an extremely gay approach. And it does undoubtedly produce quite interesting results. But historically, there is, at least in our enlightened age, something to be uh, uh, regretted about this, and something rather slightly like missing in this particular picture. But that is certainly how Voltaire writes. And he says, we know perfectly well what is true and what is false. We know when these people have produced their absurd inventions. Myths are simply idiotic nonsense which a lot of idiots have managed to contrive to persuade themselves to believe, which no sane man need have believed for a moment. They, let me tell you, Voltaire is not the first or the last to have this particular view of history. If you read so sober and so serious and so utterly respectworthy historian as, for example, Polybius, writing in the early 2nd century BC, Polybius will also tell you that the misfortune of mankind was that priests happened to preside over its birth. If only philosophers 
of a wise and knowing and knowledgeable kind had been present in the birth of mankind when man first began to emerge from the slime, so to speak, instead of a lot of ambitious and mendacious priests. The history of mankind might have been saved all the horrors for which religion is largely responsible. This is exactly what Lucretius believed, what Epicurus believed, it's what a great many persons have believed ever since. It's a belief, the, the, the history of mankind is a kind of network, in part misfortune, in part um, conspiracy, by a lot of wicked persons against, as I say, a lot of gullible ones. Vol Voltaire knows how to establish the facts, particularly cultural facts. The, for example, he's quite clear that when people say there are shells on tops of mountains, which people have begun to gather and indeed to speculate on in a kind of proto-evolutionary way, he knows that this is false, because any sensible man knows that shells cannot be found on tops of mountains. <laughs> and if he's asked why they're found, but in a half, in a half jocular way, he says, no doubt they fell off the hats of pilgrims who went up there to watch, to watch the sunrise. He knows, he knows in advance that there cannot have been two kingdoms called Babylon and Assyria in the same tiny Mesopotamian territory. The can't have been two large kingdoms so close together. This is obviously a malicious invention by a lot of conceited priests. He knows, or he knows a great many facts of this kind. He knows, <laughs> he, he knows perfectly well, for example, oh, he, 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 on the other hand, he sees no reason for, for not supposing that satyrs existed were partly goats and partly human beings. He regards that as a perfectly possible form of miscegenation, which has indeed historically stopped, which could occur again at any moment. <laughs> well, all this is all of this is said with great with great with great seriousness. But the really disappointing thing about Voltaire is that his history of culture, if you actually read the essays of Lemers, if you actually read Le Louis in spite of the fact that they're extremely gay, very amusing and particularly amusing, for example, are his biographies, his life of Charles XII of Sweden, his life of Peter the Great of Russia, are really brilliantly well written. I mean, as a storyteller, as a raconteur, he has no equal. Uh, Voltaire is a kind of, it's difficult to describe him, he's a kind of half-tourist, half-moralist throughout this, who picks up all kinds of unconsidered trifles and turns them to all kinds of profit, and is one of the gayest, most delightful, most uh, uh, fascinating storytellers I think whom humanity has ever known. I mean, you can call him a journalist, if you, a journalist if you like, but it's an apotheosis of this particular art. But if you look for actual hard nuggets of what might be called cultural history, you'll be bitterly disappointed. He enunciates a program by which all his um, I think all his, the persons who praised him for being the father of the subject have been to some extent taken in. He says, we don't wish to know about the behavior of kings and courts. We don't want to know about commanders. We don't want to know, as I say, about whether Quincom succeeded Quocum or Quocum succeeded Quincom. That is not the proper subject of history. Who cares about this? What we want to know is how men um, live, how they eat, how they sleep, how they dress, how they walk, how they make war. Really well, this is a perfect honorable program, and he does say we must know, we ought to know about people's clothes, we ought to know about imports and exports, we ought to know about canals, we ought to know about uh, economic life in general, we ought to know about demography, we ought to know about the rise and fall of populations. These are the things to attend to. But if you actually look at his writings, from time to time he does give you a few fragmentary bits of information on these topics. But it's unsystematic. He's plainly bored of the subject himself. The least amusing parts are the parts where he forces himself into giving a certain amount of official information according to this program. And the whole thing is really an exceedingly pathetic affair. If you compare it, certainly with Montesquieu, but even with some of the writers on this kind of topic in the French 16th century, to which, uh, at the end of these lectures, if anyone still remains here, I propose to come. Now, 
the point about Voltaire is that his notion of culture is this. There is a perfectly clear criterion for what is good and what is bad. That is what I mean by saying to all true questions there is one correct answer if you have the criterion for obtaining it. If you ask what is worth existing and what is not, what kind of life is worth living and what kind of life is not, what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is good and what is bad, what is noble and what is ignoble, any intelligent person living at the beginning of the 18th century is armed with weapons which can establish this with complete dogmatic certainty. Voltaire knows the answers. And his story of culture, so far as it is a story, is a kind of musée imaginaire, rather in the Malraux sense of the word, of simply stringing together the uh, few bits, so to speak, the few happy moments when humanity came of age, Athens, Rome, I mean, Athens, Rome, um, um, Florence, France during the Sun King's reign. You string these together and you say, that is when beautiful pictures were painted, beautiful poems were written, um, splendid works of thought were achieved. These were proud hours in the history of mankind. All the rest is darkness, ignorance, idleness, and shame. Well, quite apart from his judgment, the point is that he, the criteria for Athens and for Rome are identical with the criteria for Florence and France in the 17th century. There is no sense of continuity, there is no genetic sense, there is no sense of why these things happen as they do, there is no particular attempt, so to speak, to these things are strung out on the strings, so to speak, in a perfectly timeless fashion. And you get exactly the same thing then repeated in the 18th century. Voltaire knows what is good and what is bad. He knows, without very much argument, that Dante is bizarre, that Shakespeare is no good, that Milton is no good, that Edison is much better. He knows this. He knows a great many facts of this kind. He knows that Racine and Molière are very good playwrights. And he knows, for example, that the Bible is simply a collection of ghastly stories about a fanatical sect, <laughs> the consequences of whose acts are, are to have brought endless miseries upon the heads of mankind. His two most unfavored groups among human beings are the Jews and the Jesuits. And almost every crime that can be imputed to them is imputed by him to them. Well, now, this is, roughly speaking, Voltaire's I'm really, this is certainly no greater caricature of Voltaire than his caricatures of other people. <laughs> <laughs> but if, 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 if you look, so that quite apart from the justice of this picture, I think if you look at, if you look at his writings, you will find it not altogether unjust. But at any rate, uh, this is Voltaire's view, and it is the view of the 18th century writers who followed him. If you look at what Holbach says, if you look at what Helvetius says, if you look at what even the, the honorable, serious, extremely um, 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 responsible Condorcet says of these subjects, you will find the repetition of exactly the same program. Condorcet's famous esquisse on the progress of the human mind is simply a story of uh, efforts on the part of human beings against the most terrible odds to construct a rational picture of nature and themselves by means of a growing progressive natural science, which is, with which he more or less identifies the only kind of philosophy worth having. It's an extremely moving work, but he ignores anything which is not a contribution to the gradual growth in rationality of mankind. The arts, religion, attitudes to life in general, everything which, as I say, the word culture in the sense which we use it now, in which it stands practically for any form of uh, collective manifestation of life, so to speak, which people choose to put forward. In that sense, so to speak, there is, culture does not exist for them. 
And this is a tradition, I've called it the French tradition, rather crudely, because of course there have been uh, important French writers from Guizot onwards who have not accepted this view at all. Nevertheless, it progresses. It goes from Voltaire into the 18th century. From the 18th century, it certainly animated some of the leaders of the French Revolution. From them, it goes through Condorcet to Saint-Simon. From Saint-Simon, it goes to someone like Buckle, for example. His history of civilization in England is an absolute model of the sort of thing I mean. He says, aesthetic taste varies, moral taste varies, the number of good men and bad men, the number of noble being noble in any age is probably the same. We don't know very much about the motives which moved men in previous ages to the exhibition of a particular kind of aesthetic or moral or religious attitudes they had. And in any, in any case, these things are soon forgotten. What is not forgotten is the only thing which persists forever, and that is invention and discovery. What Archimedes has done stands up. What Newton has done stands up. What uh, um, um, others have done, I mean, the moralists of the past world, what Aristotle's views on ethics or Pascal's views on ethics, this will pass. This is of no great interest. These are simply the subjective views of people, no doubt, of great sensibility and imagination, but ultimately some kind of private lucubration on the part of individuals which have no positive basis, no, there is no means, so to speak, of establishing any kind of irrefragable truth in these matters. These are ultimately simply expressions of some kind of emotional attitude, and therefore will winnow away, will blow away, together with the circumstances which made them seem plausible when they did. And the only thing which stands up in the end are inventions and discoveries. Exactly the same will be said by his successors in the 19th century, up to and including thinkers like Shaw, thinkers like Wells, thinkers like um, the late Professor Bernal and so on, to whom the march of culture is simply the so speak, cumulative control of nature by man by rational and scientific means. Now, there is nothing to be said against that as, a, as an attitude. But it is one which is, so to speak, in some sense, eliminates the whole dimension, so to speak, of what might be called historical mindedness. Why the whole genetic aspect of why human beings were as they were when they were, what particular their values were, what sort of attitudes they had, and why they had these attitudes, and how these attitudes affected their lives, or perhaps placed them in the frame of mind in which certain things appeared to them right or wrong, in which they lived the kind of lives they did, or produced the kind of works of art they did, or even, if you like, well, against what kind of circumstances, for example, even scientific inventions and discovery were produced and what function they played in the lives of these societies and how they came to be, which is, I should have thought, one of the proper functions of historians, whether cultural historians or other kinds. Anyhow, that is a tradition. What I wish to convey is, although this is quite a powerful tradition, and although, so to speak, it's in, particularly in the case of Voltaire, an injustice is done to the memory of those who truly founded this subject by supposing that he is the true founder of it, when in fact, as I say, all that Voltaire is, in my case, I think quite happy phrase, he's simply the banker of the Enlightenment. By which he, what he means is, he's the man who accumulates everything which is valuable from the point of view of the Enlightenment, assuming that the standards of the Enlightenment are eternal standards and are quite incapable of altering, assuming that it really is possible to establish what is right, what is good, what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is worth preserving, worth commemorating, worth discussing, and what is not. Even Montesquieu, who is regarded as the father of relativism, and who is supposed, in contrast with dogmatic positivists like Voltaire, to have been sensitive to the differences of culture, to the differences between how things are done in Persia as against the way in which things are done in Paris, to the differences, so to speak, of the institutions and, and outlooks uh, under the influence of perhaps uh, different geographical, climatic, and other natural differences. Even Montesquieu, when you come to look at his journals, 
um, will turn out, as you will see if we do look at these journals, to have judgments, for example, about pictures, about paintings, exactly as rigorous, as unanswerable, as firm as Voltaire. He knows which painters are beautiful and which painters are ugly. He knows who are the good sculptors and who are the bad sculptors, and he knows that there is a method for discovering this which nobody will ever upset. Just as he knows that this is so in the case of mathematics, just as he knows this is so in the case of law, so he knows this is in the case of aesthetics as well. Now, the proposition I wish to make at this point is that if you come to the eminent cultural historians of the 19th century, who after all gave the subject such a, its good name, such a good name as it possesses, if you look at Burkhardt, for example, with his famous book on the history of civilization in, in Italy during the Renaissance, if you look at um, Heisinger, if you look at even someone like Schürer, for example, who produced an excellent history of the uh, culture or civilizations, it's because of Kulturgeschichte of the Jews um, during the um, uh, period just before, just after the birth of Christ. If you look at such books, this is not their attitude and not their conception of the subject at all. They appear to stem from some quite different tradition. Let me read you a famous passage from Erich Auerbach. Erich Auerbach, who is very, an extremely distinguished exponent of the subject, which will indicate the kind of difference that I mean. When people realize that epochs and societies are not to be judged in terms of a pattern concept of what is desirable absolutely, but rather in every case in terms of their own premises, when people reckon among such premises not only natural factors like climatic, uh, climate and soil, but also the intellectual and historical factors, when, in other words, they come to develop a sense of historical dynamics, of the incomparability of historical phenomena, so that each epoch appears as a whole, whose character is reflected in each of its manifestations, when finally they accept the conviction that the meaning of events cannot be grasped in, abs in abstract and general forms of cognition, and that the material needed to understand it must not be sought in the upper strata of society and in major political events, but also in art, economy, material and intellectual culture, in the depths of the workaday world and its men and women, because it is only there that one can grasp what is unique, what is animated by inner forces, and what in a more concrete and more profound sense is universally valid. If you think of this as, it seems to me, a perfectly good statement of what cultural history is about, you will see that this is altogether at variance with the tradition which I've just tried to describe. And the question is, where does this stem from? Well, if you take the Great, the greatest exponent of it in the 19th century. If you take, um, for example, um, uh, Burkhardt, where did Burkhardt obtain his education? Burkhardt obtained his education at the hands of the great Burke, who was a great professor of Greek in Berlin, which, where, whose lectures he attended. Burke was not only a great classical scholar, but wrote about Greece as a manifestation, as he himself thought it, of its, of course, to use a terrible word, to use a terrible notorious word, of its Volksgeist, of the whole spirit of the Greek people, which he regarded as, in some way, infusing and informing its sculpture, its painting, its tragedies, its philosophy, its historical prose, and everything which we associate with what we now call Greek civilization. And Burke, in turn, towards the end of his life, began writing a book called Helene, Helene, the Greek which was going to be the great synthetic representation, so to speak, of what the Greeks were, what they meant to him, what he regarded 
the Greek culture as being, what he regarded as its contribution to the world, what he regarded as a Greek outlook, how the world looked to the Greeks, what they made of it, and what the inheritance is. The sort of subject with which uh, Greek scholars of a, uh, this culture-interested kind, people like um, Gilbert Manny, for example, in the 20th century, largely dealt, and Villanovitz, largely dealt for the rest of their lives. Now, Burke himself got it from his teachers in the form of people like Wolf, for example, who taught him, who was a great Hermetic scholar, and this goes back to the 18th century. This is how, certainly how uh, Savigny saw history, the whole historical school of law, certainly conceived of culture as some kind of stream in which all the manifestations of the life of a given community could be regarded in some way as interconnected. In some way, if not flowing through a common center, at any rate reflecting each other in some identifiable fashion. So that it was more important to establish what it was that this particular community was trying to express or trying to be than to condemn it, to judge it, to say whether it was good or bad, or whether its history would or would not be profitable for the particular audience to whom it was directed in the somewhat utilitarian uh, and, and melioristic spirit of Voltaire. And this again, I think, springs from two different traditions. Let me once again return to a dichotomy, which like all dichotomies, is over-general, over-dogmatic, and if taken too seriously, will certainly distort the facts, but which nevertheless is perhaps in a limited way useful. The dichotomy is this. There is, so to speak, uh, if we take simply the realm of aesthetic theory, there is aesthetic theory as, for example, is practiced by the aesthetic theorists in France in the 17th and 18th centuries, and in the first, some of them, in the 19th century as well, whereby the idea of a, of a work of art, or indeed any product of a human, human being, that's to say of thought, or art, or anything else that human beings put forward as something which they regard as worthy of survival, something which they put their personality into in some way, their creative force, which regards these, these works of art as, in some sense, an object of which the maker is, as it were, the purveyor. So that the value lies in the work itself, in the book of history, in the statue, in the symphony itself, where the, so to speak, identity and character of the artist or the creator, the story of the maker, is comparatively irrelevant. And why you simply don't ask any questions about him at all. It's impertinent to ask whether the creator wrote it in order to make money or wrote it in order to spite some other creator, or wrote it really out of some kind of idealistic motive. It's impertinent to ask whether this particular painter or that particular um, um, composer was also a good father, or was a patriot, or was an atheist, or whatever it might be. This is irrelevant. Look at the work. And that's all there is, it's there is no, the idea of a human being behind it is, in a sense, it may be true, but it isn't relevant. You wouldn't, if you wanted a table, you wouldn't ask about the carpenter's political or aesthetic beliefs. You would simply judge the table by whether it would function properly on the table. Well, a symphony is no different. It's what the public wants. If it's beautiful, it will sell well, and Mozart and Haydn will make money. If it is not beautiful, it will sell less well. The ultimate judge, judges are, of course, the clients, the people for whose benefit it is made. The business of the artist is to create the best work of art possible. The business of the goldsmith is to make the best golden box which he can make. That is one view of art, and this is the view which certainly the um, <coughs> aesthetic theorists, for example, of the 18th century, um, broadly speaking, agreed about. I mean, they disagreed about the role of reason versus emotion, or reason versus sense, or whether um, you imitated nature on the contrary, whether by some kind of leaps of genius you were allowed to make something over and above nature, something independent, and so on. There were a great many conflicts between the aestheticians of the 18th century, which are still quite interesting. 
um, sort of rubble between people like Diderot and Rousseau and so on. But what, it, what they're all agreed about in that sense is that the artifact is an artifact, the object is an object, and a culture is to be judged as Voltaire judged it. Is it, is what he said true? Is what has been made beautiful? Is the thing good or bad, so to speak? Is it, does it arouse these emotions in me or does it not? Then there is the other approach, which is the view that the artist fundamentally is not a purveyor but a voice speaking. And the business of the artist, what the artist seeks to do, and not only the artist, but man in general seeks to do, is to communicate. And if a, what a man seeks to do is to communicate, then of course the success or failure of what he's doing is whether he's understood. And works of art, in some sense, are attempts to convey something to someone. And therefore, in a sense, are a form of com communication between human beings, as Tolstoy was later to call it. And this is a very different view, and springs from very different soil. The soil that springs from is really not French soil at all, but German soil. And this brings me to the, the contrast with Voltaire, which I wish to draw, and that is the German um, thinker and uh, literary um, critic and historian uh, Gottfried Herder who is the exact the antithesis to the Voltaire at any rate in the way in which I try to depict him. He is, I suppose, in some sense, the biggest influence upon the notion of the history of culture, even at the present day, let me say something about him. But before I say anything about him, may I say something about the general, what might call political, and perhaps the point, social and economic conditions of the Germany of which he was a member, because it isn't entirely irrelevant. There is no doubt that Herder represents the highest and most eloquent and most influential moment of rebellion against the formal enlightenment ideal in the 18th century, so to speak, that occurred in European history, and which ultimately led to a civil war in the 19th century, which, and the 20th too, which has not yet been won by either side. The battle continues and continues in the most fascinating and remarkable fashion. If you say why, what about Herder, how did this arise, so to speak? Well, I think something must be said about the conditions in which Herder grew up, and in which Germany indeed found itself in the 18th century. Otherwise, I think it's a little odd that this figure should suddenly have risen out of nothing at all and denounced the French for no particular reason, just because he was a German, which is, <laughs> you will commonly find, is sometimes stated in histories of uh, aesthetics. <laughs> The, I'm no historian, and therefore what I'm about to say, I say with a, with, with a great deal of diffidence. And if I'm mistaken about, about this, or indeed about anything else, I expect I shall be uh, questioned very properly and shown up, perhaps, uh, during the discussion, which is to follow this lecture. But let me begin as follows. There are certain peculiarities about German history during this period which I think have to be noted. The first and the most, perhaps the most um, controversial statement I have to make is that um, Germany really, in a certain sense, did not have a renaissance, in any true sense of the word. And this made a difference to its whole national consciousness, if you believe in such a thing. If you take, took a journey in Europe, for example, from, let us say, Bordeaux, to, let us say, anywhere you wish, the East, to Warsaw, in, say, the year 1500, I think we would have found that the general cultural conditions of various parts of Europe were not enormously different from each other. And say culturally, there wasn't a sharp break of any kind. What you found in, let us say, southern France, or in, indeed in, in eastern France as well, and what you found in the corresponding parts of, let us say, Bavaria and so on, was not all that different. 
in the inferior in certain respects to the magnificent relics of the Italian Renaissance by that time. The Italian Renaissance was at then in its full height. But of course, in Germany had Dürer, and in Germany had Holbein, and Germany had Grünwald. It had splendid scholars, it had Reuchlin, it had many, a great many other people whose scholarship and whose imagination were second to none. It was one of the most civilized parts of Europe and vied successfully with even the great Italian scene. If you undertook the same journey, say in 1600, I think we would find a very different scene. Italy, of course, had by this time, in some ways, culturally, if not gone down in the world, altered somewhat. Painting, for example, perhaps was not quite at the great original height which it was during the High Renaissance. But, of course, I mean, the, 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 uh, Italian natural science and Italian writing were still at a very great height, and anyone who was civilized at all traveled in Italy. Spain was going through one of its great creative literary periods. In fact, its highest and unmatched literary period was Calderon with Cervantes and Vernes. England was during its Elizabethan age. The low countries were producing uh, painting of unexampled splendor, and were, were beginning to, at any rate, uh, after Van Eyck, and would no doubt continue to do so until the late 17th century. Even Sweden was beginning to stir. If you, however, <laughs> Holland, of course, as I say, Holland, the Low Countries, where the state of effervescence, France, was during the period, the Parnassian period of, of the Pleiade, was, was, was a glory to France and to the rest of the world, and its scholars were perhaps the greatest scholars in Europe. Certainly, its classical scholars were by that time at our distance the Italians. If, however, you went to Germany, you would find a somewhat different picture. If I ask you to mention one great Kulturträger, one great contributor to culture, if you like, among the Germans, uh, it would be not, not impossible. Somebody could say Kepler, but Kepler was a, uh, an obscure astrologer who ultimately died of hunger in Bavaria somewhere and was not very well known in his lifetime. Jakob Böhmer was, at uh, the beginning of the 17th century, was uh, just an unknown cobbler, uh, I don't think he thought, of a, a powerful, influential kind, but again, a somewhat obscure and somewhat uh, marginal figure. Of course, if I ask you whether you think the poetry of Moshe was superior to the poetry of Uden, no doubt specialists in German literature might be able to answer that question. <laughs> but to the great majority, this question would not make a very great deal of sense. I wish to convey that although, of course, literary life went on, the general level of education was extremely high, the Germans were among the most civilized peoples of Europe as far as the general level was concerned. Nevertheless, it does seem that the Reformation made a certain difference. And made a difference in the sense that somehow it pushed general interest in the arts and the sciences to the side, so that in some way it became a somewhat provincial affair. If you ask what Vienna contributed at that particular stage, apart from entertaining various foreign scientists, artists and so on, uh, who were attracted to the court of the Holy Roman Empire, the contribution, apart from architecture, which is considerable, is exceedingly small. It's not non-existent, but it's exceedingly small. That is one fact. And ever since then, there has been a certain I won't say resentment, but a certain feeling, so to speak, on the part of German land, certainly until the late 17th century, or at least the third decade of the 17th century, when Leibniz restored its intellectual fortunes. And after that, of course, the 18th century was a period of great efflorescence in Germany as well. Until then, it remained as a somewhat forgotten part of Europe, and although the Thirty Years' War didn't do, didn't exactly improve the situation, <laughs> the fact that it's normally blamed, the devast terrible devastation of the Thirty Years' War is normally blamed for Germany's comparative cultural backwardness, this is chronologically not the case. The situation in 1580 was not much better. That is fact number one. Now, 
of course, there was always a certain anti-rationalism in the very development of the Lutheran Church, so to speak. I mean, Luther himself, as you know, spoke of reason um, as, as a dangerous whore who had to be avoided at all costs because it um, was capable of undermining the foundations of faith. And so a certain anti-rationalism was there from the beginning in the very Lutheran revolt, in a certain sense, against the sophistication of, of the Roman Church, against the corruption and sophistication of the Roman Church, which were, in a certain sense, identified with some kind of dangerous rationalism. Moreover, as the 18th century certainly wore on, the sheer magnificence of France, the obvious contempt which the French showed towards their eastern neighbours, was itself not a very helpful factor, so to speak, in raising the morale, cultural morale, of the Germans. The French were obviously the dominant leaders in the world altogether. They were the, certainly militarily the most powerful, their literature was dominant in the world, their so were their arts, science and philosophy were at the height in France during the reign of Louis XIV and after, so to speak, and there was no doubt that they looked upon the Germans as a collection of fairly dim provincials. Nobody could be expected, to speak, to receive this entirely well. And the fact that there should have been a certain accumulated resentment against this, a sort of backlash against this particular attitude, was absolutely inevitable. And therefore there began to grow up in Germany a certain, uh, so to speak, uh, what might be called uh, an attitude which always does occur in the case of uh, persons who are in some way humiliated or insulted. One of two things happens, or one of three things perhaps. Some begin imitating the, way, the, the, the successful power in the hope of reaching some such level themselves, but not very successfully, and this then becomes a rather uh, feeble, rather unsuccessful form of aping, or parroting, so to speak, which earns more contempt than it does admiration. Others, on the other hand, retreat into themselves, take up a kind of uh, wounded attitude uh, of, of those who say, let them vaunt their qualities. Uh, we, the French, no doubt, are, have magnificent reputation in the visual arts, in the musical arts, in the art of warfare, in the art of politics, all these things. What do these things matter? These are mere dross. These things are mere uh, material uh, achievements. They are mere superficial achievements when all that matters is the inner life of man. In the inner life of man, the attitude of man to the relationship of man to God, the relationship of man's immortal soul to its ultimate salvation, this is what matters. The rest is, in a sense, totally immaterial. Let these bewigged aristocrats crack their jokes in their worthless salons. Let these smooth abbeys go on with their little handbooks of aesthetics. This has nothing to do with the true life of mankind, which is within and which, so to speak, we alone, so to speak, because we've been protected against Satan in this particular because we have been saved by the Reformation, because we have not been subjected to the temptation of this fearful uh, cheapening of the human spirit, Let, this is where this is truly preserved. This is, might be called a very natural and perhaps uh, perfectly intelligible and rather sympathetic, but nevertheless blatant form of sour grapes. <laughs> um, and this is, a this is a very normal reaction, a normal reaction on the part of those who have been left out who then say, what have they got that we haven't got? We can't be as bad as they think us to be. There is something about it which is, must be superior. And then you try and look for qualities in yourself and you say, we have the depth of the spirit. We have the immemorial wisdom of the peasant. We have something which they haven't got. <laughs> this is very much the attitude of the pietists in Germany at the beginning of the 18th century who naturally, who are a genuinely or a profoundly spiritual religious sect who think that only the sort of self-approfondissement, only the 
looking within oneself of the human being, so to speak, it, it matters because, after all, uh, the spirit alone counts for anything, and the rest is, uh, as I say, mere material worthlessness. This is the attitude of the pietists, and it is in this atmosphere that the people of whom I speak uh, were, in fact, brought up. This is added to by the fact that Frederick the Great, who was the master of the most successful German kingdom, namely Prussia, uh, displayed open contempt for everything that was German, spoke French deliberately, and imported a large number of French officials to organize and improve and modernize, that is to say, oppress, humiliate, and insult his German subjects. <laughs> At least that is how they saw it. And they saw it most in the most backward part of his kingdom, namely East Prussia, Königsberg, countries of that sort, where the importation of these arrogant French officials inflicted the deepest possible social and personal wounds. And this is really where the turbulent revolt began, there and in Switzerland. It's true that in other countries the doctrines of the Enlightenment, this, uh, the doctrines, so to speak, were not entirely well received. In England already a certain amount of stirring had begun against the Voltairean thesis that the primitive and the barbarous were not worth investigating. Um, people like, I suppose, the people like Blackwell, Blackwell's um, investigation of Homeric poems had registered a certain amount of effect. Um, so there was a wood who sailed the Greek seas, sailed the Aegean Sea, in order to inspire himself with the spirit of the Odyssey, and managed to write about Homer in a very vivid and very, what nowadays is called, highly romantical fashion. Lauf had begun in the investigation of the Hebrew language of the Bible uh, for the purpose and elaborated the theory that all literature began with religious uh, exclamations, with hymns, with invocations to God, of which the Hebrew literature formed an extremely vivid and extremely magnificent example. Percy began investigating the relics of the border ballads. Ossian was a typical phenomenon of a forged Celtic poems, so to speak, which went back, so to speak, to the non-Roman, non-classical beginnings of the alleged Celts in England. And there were other phenomena. Malay had written a history of uh, Denmark in which he celebrated uh, the great Viking remains, uh, the, 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 sort of the ancient Scandinavian literature, as against the official, uh, officially approved of uh, literature of Greece and of Rome, and so forth. So this had begun, but it had not yet swelled into anything which might be called a, an actual wave of propaganda of any kind, but it began as a kind of faint reaction, mild reaction, against the dominant 18th century French attitude that only what Voltaire and the Abbe Dubos and the Abbe Batteux and the great uh, mandarins of taste in Paris thought good was good. In Germany, in Switzerland, people like von Muralt and after him Bodmer began to do, began to praise exactly what Voltaire so much detested. Von Moral thought that English literature was superior to the French, which in 1715 was certainly a very heretical thing to say. He thought Shakespeare a magnificent dramatist. This was an original remark for his age. He celebrated Shakespeare, he celebrated Homer, and he celebrated Milton. This was a direct challenge to what might be called the taste of the Enlightenment. Uh, Bodmer began investigation also into the early German verse, uh, unearthed Nibelungs, unearthed Parsifal, began the whole uh, tradition of uh, trying to revive the ancient uh, Teutonic epics and so forth, uh, which then became uh, an, an immense industry. 
and he began celebrating the wild Swiss beginnings of this unconquered territory, not ruled over by some smooth tyrant like Louis XIV, but able in each of his little free communes to develop a free and aggressive spirit of wild liberty, which was far more vivid, far more magnificent, and far more creative and imaginative than the smooth platitudes practiced in the drawing rooms and the court of Paris. This really begins in Switzerland. And at the opposite end, in Königsberg, exactly the same movement begins with not so much, up to a point, even to some extent with Kant, although I don't wish to bring him into the story at this moment. But certainly, in the case of people like Hamann and his contemporaries, there began a half-religious, half-aesthetic revolt against the French Enlightenment, against its generalizing tendencies, against the supposition that science uh, replied to all our questions, that the life of man could be illuminated by large scientific generalizations and not by some kind of direct inspection of the human character and human activities on the part of people who truly understood other human beings. The key to human understanding is not through physics, said Harman, but through language. Through language we understand books, and in books voices speak to us. God speaks to us through the Bible, and other human beings speak to us through their books. And by understanding their language we understand what it is they say, and we penetrate into their souls as friends penetrate, not as analysts do. In other words, the proper way of understanding life is to understand other human beings. And to understand other human beings, you need the gifts of some kind of artistic empathy. You need the gift of some kind of sympathy into the emotional, intellectual, and other movements of the human spirit, rather than the capacity for calm, rational analysis in the way in which physicists, mathematicians, and chemists are going to use their talents. That is the doctrine. This, these are the factors, I think, which on the whole made for the kind of situation, the kind of background against which Herbler was born. If we like to take, for example, someone like the forgotten figure of Justus Merzer in the little city of Osnabrück in Westphalia. Merzer is a man who takes up the challenge of Voltaire. Voltaire mocked at the fact that one law was true of one village in Westphalia and quite a different law in the next one. Merzer said that is showed the exquisite fidelity to the particular differences of tradition in one village rather than the other, instead of some fearful, crushing general law which wiped out the idiosyncratic differences between a village which might have its own exquisite traditions which it uh, preserved with the greatest affection, with the greatest love. Instead of that, each of these little German villages, each of the old 300 little principalities, grew up in its own idiosyncratic, peculiar way. And there was much poetry in this too. If you looked inside the German history, he said, you would find that instead of some large, flat, uh, political scene, as you would find in France, where there were no human beings, only persons, only legal persons, no, no human beings at all, where the legal personality had completely extruded the human being. You would find here the rich variety, the immense asymmetry, the marvelous meandering paths, incapable of being straightened out by any ruler, by any geometrical instruments of the variety, the teeming variety and, and, and richness of true human life, and so forth. And Mirza, in this way, became the first eloquent German reactionary by defending every little tittle, every little jot of German law, whether it was just or unjust. He simply said, anything which our ancestors loved, anything which is true of the history of this particular village, must be preserved with the most loving care. If you let this go, you will simply become one of these 
faceless subjects of some remote king, as in France, people who have totally lost their personality, who have no relation to God, no relation to men, who are simply faceless subjects of an of, of, of all-leveling force, something of that kind. This is the kind of atmosphere in the 1760s which begins to get going, and this is repeated in somewhat more moderate language by Burke in England, who certainly hadn't read any of these people. Now, Herbert was brought up in this atmosphere, and I think was a man who genuinely started from the proposition that art, in which he was interested, but particularly language and particularly poetry, was in some sense a voice speaking. And because it was a voice speaking, what you needed were not the particular um, uh, uh, gifts which were needed, for example, by a genuine scientist, namely the capacity to generalize, the capacity to create abstract models for the purpose of comparing the jagged, uneven surface of life against these idealized models. Not the capacity for generalizing or for, drawing, for um, formulating hypotheses which could be verified or falsified in experience, or creating great codes of law which would have some kind of intelligible central logical structure so that every law could be read off from the general network of laws by means of some kind of uh, clear um, and, and, and precise rules which any competent person who studied them could easily apply. These were not the ways in which human life could properly speaking be understood, even if they had their uses in other contexts. What you needed was not knowledge, above all, which is what the Enlightenment had praised. It wasn't really knowledge of facts. That is what, not what was needed. What was needed was a political understanding. If you, re if you are reading a book in order to understand what it is the author is telling you, if you are looking at a picture, in order to know what the painter is trying to convey to you, you don't need factual information. It may help, but that is not, above all, what you need. What you need is some capacity for entering into the purposes, the motives, the outlook which the, the painter, the writer, the architect, whoever it might be, is in some way, either consciously or unconsciously, attempting to convey. The picture of the world which he's trying to embalm in his work, immortalize, give some kind of concrete embodiment to. And the capacity for understanding, which he was the first to elaborate, this famous Einstein, which he invented as a word, the idea of empathy, the idea of insight, which is not intellectual faculty at all, of course, is the faculty which we need for the purpose, at any rate, of understanding the, what might be called the emotional or the spiritual life of mankind. It is here, I think, you will find, before I go any further, that you will find the division, which then becomes more and more patent in the 19th and 20th centuries, between the fields in which we demand truth and the fields in which we appear not to demand truth, if I may put this in very, this very bold fashion. In fields like mathematics or physics or even common sense to a large extent, or history for that matter, we really demand verification of some sort. We demand some kind of argument for supposing things to be as we say they are, either in the deductive sciences by the application of proper rules, or in the case of the non-deductive sciences, by whatever the methods are for establishing that events were indeed such as we claim them to be, and that human beings were as uh, they are described as being, and the like. But there is whole, uh, these are the fields of what might be called descriptive knowledge. And here, there may be great argument as to what kind of knowledge, uh, knowledge it is, what in induction is, what deduction is, what hypothetical deduction may be, what are the methods of, of ascertaining the truth, whether it can ever be verified or only probabilified, what is meant by confirming or disconfirming hypotheses, and so on. And this is the philosophy of science and to some extent the philosophy of common sense too. But then there are fields, aesthetic, religious, moral to some extent, 
political, what is nowadays called ideology, in a general way, not used, perhaps Marx used the word, but what we normally mean by ideological, where the demand is not, except on the part of fanatical followers of parties, for demonstrable truth. Where the whole sermon about toleration works, you say, we really must be able to tolerate a great many opinions. One mustn't burn people alive because they hold religious views or ethical views or aesthetic views uh, different from your own. Now, Auguste Comte said, in the 19th century, outraged by this, I may say, said, if we do not allow free thought in mathematics and in logic, why on earth should we allow it in politics and ethics? Which was a very proper, challenging question. It is true that on the whole, we don't like schoolmasters who, perhaps without giving adequate reason, which we don't think they will be able to give, teach our boys and girls that twice two sometimes make four and sometimes seven and a half. We don't want to have physicists who produce what we regard as absurd statements in physics, which contradict the established conclusions of the sciences established by the methods which are regarded as reputable by people who practice these subjects and so on. But there are certain realms in which we do demand tolerance. And we demand tolerance to a large extent because whatever the quality is that we're looking for, it isn't quite truth in the sense in which we demand it in these other more positive fields. What it is to be called, I don't know, except acceptability, plausibility. We speak of ideologies as being profound or shallow. We speak of them as being wide or narrow. We speak of them as being convincing or unconvincing. All kinds of words are used. But we don't eliminate what might be called, or don't we, in liberal societies at least, it is it's regarded as proper not to persecute differences of view in these particular fields because it is regarded as proper and indeed perhaps even as desirable, even as better than not, even as a very good thing. And there should be a variety of views, there should be a wide spectrum, and there should be a, a lively interchange and lively argument on, in, in this great field without very much hope that a consensus, a permanent consensus, in the way in which in certain scientific subjects, about fundamentals at least, it can be said to have been obtained, at least for periods, without the hope that such a consensus will in our day be possible. And this division between what might be called the, the field of descriptive sciences proper, or the mathematical sciences too, I mean, let's say both the deductive and the inductive sciences, to give it a general name on the one hand, and what might be called the vaguer, uh, more confused uh, ideological field with its much more blurred outlines, with its far more, so to speak, emotion and, and what might be called cosmic attitudes, things like optimism and pessimism, um, um, general attitudes to the world entering much more deeply, this particular division, I think, enters into thought, human thought, just about as well. <laughs> at about this time, in the second third of the 18th century. And it is upon this that Herder built his entire notion of culture, the history of culture, and what specialists in this subject ought to be concerned with. <coughs> the three um, fundamental approaches, the three fundamental questions to which he addressed himself, and which I don't think I can develop in this lecture, but hope to do in the next one, are these. Now, the first was his belief four perhaps rather than three. The first was his belief that man was one and not compartmentalized and therefore anything that a human being did, he did the whole of his character and nature and therefore his entire activities could be regarded as in some way interrelated. What a man, a man's life as a man will have some relevance to his painting as a painter, to his politics as a politician, to his sailing of the sea as a sailor, to his uh, construction of a building as an architect. And therefore, th that is proposition number one. And therefore, since human beings are, in fact, 
single natures. The division of human beings into specialization, for example, division of labor. Every time that a man says, speaking as a father, I say this, but speaking as a citizen, I say that. Speaking as a poet, of course, I approve, although speaking perhaps as a Catholic, I'm not sure. This kind of talk is some kind of self-falsification, some sort of self-mutilation. There isn't such a thing as speaking as. You are what you are, and what you believe, you must believe, and you must defend with the whole of your nature. The idea that in some way uh, you have a duty to speak with one voice as a member of this or that profession, what is nowadays called role-playing, and with another voice as being something else, is some form of dehumanization, of atomization of yourself as a personality, and so forth. That's proposition number one. The second proposition which he believed in was, or the second question to which he addressed himself, was, I think, the, this thing which I've already spoken about, the notion that human activity as such is principally and centrally a form of communication, expression, that you express your personality. You're not simply making a vase. You're not simply contributing a truth. You're not simply doing, making something which is independent of yourself. Whatever you do is in some sense you accept responsibility for, because in some sense it, it is yourself speaking. You are imposing your personality upon the raw material, and for this you must accept responsibility. And therefore, in judging it, you must understand who does it, why he does it, in what circumstances he does it, who told him to do it, was he paid for it, did he do it under, under coercion, of what society was he a member, was he, did he have a patron, did the patron force him to do this or that, to what class did he belong, the whole of the spectrum, if you say what I mean, which is nowadays regarded as social criticism, by which you place people <coughs> in their proper social context and examine their motives not only from the individual, but from the social point of view as well, stems from him. The third thing, I think, is the fact that he was the first person, I suppose, to um, discover the concept of what it is to belong to a group or be a member of an association. Again, I didn't want to enlarge upon this now because I've reached the end of the hour, but the whole notion of what it is to be a German, what it is to be a Portuguese, why it is, so to speak, that uh, there are such things as the impersonal creations of a large number of anonymous persons. Geist, and Nationalgeist and all the other Geister in which um, um, Herder dealt very generously. This notion, too, belongs to him. And finally, um, I, I suppose, one has to uh, understand that all this was directed, in the first place, towards, direct, towards some kind of attack, some kind of um, um, attempt to discredit and destroy what might be called the 18th century Enlightenment attitude of the to him hated French masters, although he didn't at all deny the usefulness and importance of science, except that he regarded biological science as being perhaps more relevant to what might be regarded as the national culture than he did physical science. In, but he did think that the application of scientific criteria to what might be called ideological or cultural phenomena led to totally disastrous consequences. That's to say, the analytic methods, so to speak. The important, God for him, in the words of Harman, was not uh, um, uh, a physicist, he was not a chemist, he was not a mathematician, he was an artist. And in order to understand the world, you must understand it as if it were the creation of some kind of, some kind of artistic process where some kind of single personality was imprinted upon it. For him, the single personality was, of course, the collective personality of a particular group. He didn't believe in um, blood, he didn't believe in soil, he happened to believe in language as the uniting factor. 
Now, what this particular belief, what these beliefs combine into, how they were sharpened and to some extent distorted into the much more dogmatic and far less plausible um, doctrines of later German philosophers, particularly the philosopher of Hegel, for which um, such a uh, it seems to me somewhat excessive, but nevertheless perfectly intelligible attack upon it was delivered by um, my friend Professor Gombrich. With this, I propose to deal, if I may, next time. Next time, I propose, if I may, to speak about Herder's specific contribution to what might be called the notion of the history of culture, what culture in general is, as against uh, other prevailing notions, to begin with that, and, of course, the enormous influence which his ideas had upon the whole of Central Europe and indeed upon large portions of Western Europe as well, particularly as they were carried into France by Madame de Stael and carried to England by the works of Sir Walter Scott. Um, this um, I should like to talk about, and then move on to Herder's predecessors in the 17th century, in particular, of course, Giambattista Vico. And in the third lecture, I propose to talk about the roots of Vico himself in extremely, the very improbable um, um, discussions of almost entirely politically motivated French grammarians and jurists. Thank you very much.